Welcome to the first episode in an ongoing series between Crude and Blower Media, where I'll be talking with influential women in snowboarding. In this first episode, I talk with Brooke Geary, a longtime snowboard journalist and publisher of Snowboard Media. In 1997, Brooke started an online snowboard publication called YoBeat. It began on an AOL message board with two megabytes of free space and grew into an internationally recognized website. She says that it was a satirical site that gave a voice to people who snowboarded rather than a mouthpiece for the industry. Brooke and the content YoBeat hosted were children of the internet, conveying unfiltered opinions and candid ideas, many of which garnered love and hate in the comment section that often drew just as much attention as the articles. And this all started back when there were only a few online snowboard publications. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to Brooke Geary. Brooke says that Yobeat needed to die so that she could run a more mature snowboard publication. She was 15 years old when she started the site, and that voice persisted throughout the lifespan of the publication. Now... With her new online publication, Blower Media, a more mature Brooke is re-entering the conversation surrounding the culture of snowboarding during a time when so many legacy publications have died out. There are only a few people left in the industry with the same knowledge and first-hand experience as Brooke, so her perspective on the past, present, and future of snowboard media is one to listen to. So here she is, Brooke Geary. This red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. Ask me anything. It's like a Reddit forum over here. <laughs> An AMA. Yeah. So the other week I asked if you had any specific, anything specific you'd like to talk about. And one of the things you mentioned was how dope living in Vermont is. What can you tell me about that? Well, so I moved back to Vermont from Portland, Oregon in October, 2019, which turned out to be ahead of the curve. And I grew up here. So, you know, I have a lot of fond memories of Vermont. I also like was dying to get out when I was a kid. Um, But as an adult, Vermont is just 
the best place because not only is it progressive and beautiful, mm-hmm. but snowboarding is like five minutes away. I mean, I literally work five minutes from the Killington Skyship. So it's really kind of reawakened my love of snowboarding that when you're living in a city where you have to drive an hour and 15 minutes at least to get to the mountain, it's easy to lose that. And so in Vermont, I just can go anytime I want. I took three runs today. It was kind of crappy. It was icy and cold and I left, you know, but I got to do it and it was, and I still have a full-time job. I mean, it's just crazy. Life is just easy here compared to, you know, the life I was living in Portland. So I've been trying to tell all my friends to move back here, but uh, so far, a couple of them are here, but I feel like not at my um, beckon, beckoning. So we'll see. We'll see though. Trendsetter over here. I think at one point in our conversations on Facebook, you even suggested that me and my wife, Carrie, moved Vermont. <laughs> yes. And you didn't do it. <laughs> we did not know. <laughs> you know, one thing that I wanted to bring up before we, we get into the whole you know, interview slash conversation is how much happier you seem right now. When I was writing for Yobi years ago, I remember thinking there was this kind of underlying sadness or maybe even like a little bitterness toward, toward something. Sure. But now that you're working on your new snowboard publication, you seem genuinely happier. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't like to place blame on other people. But I had uh, actually now two men in my life who really took it out of me, you know? And when I was doing Yobi, my partner was very difficult to deal with. He just insisted on doing everything the hardest way possible. And anytime that I would be up and excited and happy and things would be working out, he would find a way to just tear it away from me. Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of ironic because I am currently getting divorced, uh, literally filed the papers today. Um, but, you know, that that partner uh, affected me in different ways and actually, I think, helped me in a lot of ways to motivate to do Blower because he was just a cheerleader for, for that element of my life. Um, unfortunately, you know, there's a lot more to life than just running a website and snowboarding. So, um, it didn't work out between us. Uh, but my, my ex ex, um, really was a downer and it, it affected me, you know, it it made me not myself. And so to, to now be kind of like on the cusp of total freedom, once again, I'm just excited. So I (laughs) I think that answers your question, right? Yeah. You know, something that came to mind is, uh, do you feel like you're a person who is kind of an empath, you know, somebody who is like greatly affected by the, the emotions of other people or even like the vibe of other people? Well, yeah. I mean, actually kind of funny story. Uh, Ben Fee, who, was, you know, a, a snowboard filmmaker back in the day at work for Nikita uh, and work was Hunter S. Thompson's uh, assistant. I mean, he's just lived this incre- incredible life. And mm-hmm. we went to Plymouth State College together and I was always talking about the vibes. And so he started calling me the vibrator, which <laughs> is hilarious in hindsight. But at the time, I kind of thought it was pretty lame, but now it's hilarious. So, um, but 
Absolutely. Uh, you know, I've never referred to it as an empath. In fact, uh, I think I have a kind of a icy exterior sometimes. Um, not so much lately, but you know, when I was younger, um, I think it's a front that I put up because it does matter so much to me and I do want everyone to be happy and I do want everyone to succeed. And even the people who don't like me and have been vocal about not liking me, it's like, you know, there's the part of me that always just wants to be like, well, why don't we just like have a conversation and see if we can find common ground. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I cover that up and, and kind of deal with that by just being like, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. But yeah, absolutely. Deep down, like it affects me just like anybody else, maybe more so. I feel like that icy exterior is pretty common in snowboarding. Mm -hmm. Cool guy syndrome. Yeah. I mean, I was like that when I was younger, you know, just totally caught up in wanting everyone to think that I was cool and that everything that I was doing was cool. Right. And then as you get older, you realize like, that that's not important, you know, right. it's important. It's important to like kind of focus on yourself and your own mental health and like your own personal progress, not compared to other people. Yeah, no, I absolutely, you know, and I've always been uh, like vocal about saying like, Oh, I don't care what anybody thinks. And I don't care what people think of me, but I do, you know, because I, I want them to like me and I want to be a good person. I want to treat people well, you know, mm -hmm. I, I love to like think that when I meet someone, even if it's briefly, that they'll remember me for the rest of their life. Like that makes me happy. So, you know, whatever kind of emotional reason or psychological reason that is, that's just who I am. Like I like to be, I'm a clown, you know, I'm a center of attention, like <laughs> show person, you know? And I think that's why like some of the people like such as Stan who have been such big parts of my life are the same way because mm -hmm you know, I feed off that energy. So you were talking about getting back into snowboarding, going up to Killington. Yeah. What got you back into snowboarding? Just convenience and happiness. I mean, just, you know, my having a generally better attitude about life. And I will give credit for snapping me out of the kind of funk I'd been in for two years following the demise of Yo Beat and, moving back to Vermont and everything was mushroom hunting because it was just something new and exciting. And I like, liked learning again and, you know, and then that season ended and snowboard season started and I just kind of carried the momentum and was able to ride it through. Mm -hmm. Sorry for that terrible pun. Um, <laughs> it was really bad. I don't even know why I bothered. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. And then, you know, when you're stoked on one thing, it's easy to be stoked on the next thing. And now I just bought a mountain bike. Like, who knows? Maybe I'll get into mountain biking. Like, mm -hmm. I'm just on a roll and I want to keep it going. I feel like I've been on that same path for a while now, too. You know, once one thing stokes you out, then you're like, oh, I wonder if this will stoke me out, too. Right. And I, I wish that... I could go back and tell myself that when I was younger, like, dude, just calm down, you know, right. just calm down and just do stuff that makes you happy. Do you feel like you're a little bit of the same way? Um, yeah, yes and no. I definitely live with no regrets. <laughs> I also don't remember a lot of my younger days. So, you know, I don't, um, I'm never like, Oh, if only I had known when I was 16 that like 
driving up to the, that house where I crashed my car, like, you know, whatever, like, that's just not how I think about things. Um, but I'm happy now that it is working for me, you know, cause I think so much of life is just figuring out what works for you. Mm -hmm. And it took me a long time to get there. And I also had a head injury, which I was actually just talking to Jesse Huffman cause he's over, uh, like recovering from a head injury and it, it affected me so much. I mean, for years and I'm still on medication to this day because of it, you know, so there's all these different factors and I just think you have to kind of like take leg of it as it comes and not live in the past and be like, Oh, I wish, I wish, I wish. For sure. And I think that it's one of those things where you might wish, or I might wish that I could go back and tell my 16, 17, eight year old self to be more calm. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, those experiences made me who I am today. Exactly. It's all on the road of life, you know? Mm -hmm. So let's go back to the beginning of your career in snowboarding. What originally got you into snowboarding? Um, well, my parents put me on skis. I was actually riding the chairlift with them yesterday or the day before, I don't know, recently. And they were talking, my dad was like, I've been skiing for 55 years. And my mom was like, no, you've been skiing for 65 years. And I was like, <laughs> damn, like, that's crazy. And I was like, so how long have I been skiing? And they were like, well, I mean, you skied in the womb and you rode in a backpack while you were a baby. But I, you know, I would say 22 months. So I was less than two years old the first time I was on skis. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I just grew up in the mountains. My parents were ski bums and it was just natural. Um, and we lived in Vermont. Uh, I rode, we went to Pico Mountain that we had, they had a great pass deal on Sundays for families. And actually this year has been crazy because tickets have been very affordable at Killington Pico. They do Vermont days. They have like a good season pass. They just introduced a monthly payment plan for year-round pass to Killington for golf, mountain biking, and skiing. That's a hundred bucks a month. I mean, it's like the best deal possible. So anyway, with that, I got off. I got a tangent. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> it's rare that I want to give props to a corporation, but Killington's doing a great job. Okay. So anyway, we rode a Pico and I would see snowboarders and I just thought it was so cool. And so we went up to Burke Mountain to stay at a friend of my dad's condo and go skiing and his daughter um had snowboards and i was like sweet i'm gonna try snowboarding um it was a burton uh ouija board that like one that says yes no that she had but that was her board so she wouldn't let me ride it so i rode the funky um which i was so embarrassed by but i side scraped down the trails i was in the, the woods the whole time um, and I was hooked and we ended up buying that funky, that was my first snowboard. Um, and I went to high school with a kid that snowboarded, you know, and I was like, psyched to hang out with him and it just snowballed into like me getting really into it. Um, I, I think, you know, I went to the U S open when I was 14 and I actually just wrote a story about it for Gary Land's book, um, which remind like just memory lane it's been memory lane like every day since deciding to launch blower um but uh that was like my first introduction to like professional snowboarding 
And that was the point where I was like, oh, okay, this is it. And so that was, you know, I was hooked on snowboarding. I would go in AOL chat rooms, uh, keyword SOL, which stood for snowboarding online, not shit out of luck. And <laughs> that is where I met Rachel Cotton, who actually started Yobeat with me way back when on our AOL, two megabytes of free space um in that chat room and then we met like irl which was really risque back then in 96 um and yeah we just hit it off and you know the rest is history <laughs> you know you've told me that story before and one thing that you've you've told me immediately following that is something along the lines of you know you are like a child of the internet sure but now the internet is crazy. I kind of like, I didn't have a computer in my house for an entire year. I used one at work. And so I obviously use the internet, but it wasn't the addiction. I mean, I guess maybe I just replaced it with my phone and that's probably for being realistic. But, you know, to me, it was like a big deal to not have a computer at my house. And I just like everything I've done in my life has become because of the internet in some way I've met so many people and like, yes, snowboarding has aided that process. Like snowboarding is the, the broader connector and the internet just brings the people who snowboard together. And that's what I love about it. And that's like why I've kind of adopted it so much into my life and use it so much. So I don't know. Does that make sense? Totally. You know, I, um, I'm trying to figure out which, which kind of lane to go in right now. And I think I'm just going to go with this one. And so you've been working in some capacity within the snowboard industry since the early nineties, right? Um, mid to late nineties, 97. Okay. How would you describe the snowboard scene back then? It was awesome. I mean, it was small and and tight knit and just a raging party all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, I got sponsored at High Cascade. I went to High Cascade when I was 15. Um, we would hang out like me and Brooke and the Bros, which my coach Athena wrote about me, uh, would hang out at the original Sin Demo Center. And then like the second to last day of camp, we the rep came up and rode with us and I hit the big jump at the end of the half pipe. And I don't even think I landed it. Like, I don't even remember hitting it. Honestly, it's just like a blackout moment, but he was so impressed that he called back to Vermont and told them about me. and was like, there's this girl out here and she's better than all the pros, which like I wasn't, I don't, I don't know, but I just was an idiot and would throw myself off anything. Um, <laughs> and still will to this day, actually. So nothing's changed there. Um, but <laughs> maybe smaller things, but yeah, I mean that, and then between that and having a website, it all just kind of snowballed into itself, you know, through that same snowboarding online chat room, I got, I met Lee Crane who ended up snowboarding online, got bought by the company that owned Transworld. So all of a sudden I wrote for Transworld, mm -hmm. you know, and so, and then snowboarder called me when I was 17. I was like, oh, hey, like, we need a web editor and your name came up. And I was like, uh, I'm 17. Like, I'm going <laughs> to college. Like, okay. But I ended up interning there, you know, and it's like you meet one person and you meet the next person. And, you know, and I, I, I have some skills, 
you know, I can take photos, I can write, I am personable. So it it's easy to just transition from one thing to the next and snowboarding being kind of like the cool culture that it is makes it even easier. What did snowboarding media look like back then? Well, there was magazines and people mm -hmm. read them. And on the East Coast, we actually had two East Coast magazines. There was East Infection and Eastern Edge. And Eastern Edge was kind of like the straight lace, like Neil Korn run it, ran it. And he was like, you know, just more of like an adult. We'll put it that way. And then East Infection was Mark Sullivan and Pat Bridges. And it was, you know, it was raw and raucous and much more uh, representative of the actual snowboard scene at that time, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I still have copies of both and they're amazing. And I don't know, we were just lucky to have all that. Um, but there was no, there was only like the one video a year or well, or five videos, you know, Mac Dog video, uh, maybe Burton would put out a video. There, there weren't, it wasn't like a new clip every second by any means. Mm -hmm. And I remember making my first animated GIFs, you know, when I was 19 years old and putting them online and being like, oh my God, it's mind blowing. Like things are moving on the internet. So <laughs> it was like a different time, a different world. It's hard to even like remember having to dial up to wait 20 minutes for like one photo to download. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but so far we've come. You know, what's interesting is the the two magazines, the two East Coast magazines that you brought up and how one was a little bit more straight laced and the other one was more representative of the culture. It seems to me like one of those at least won out for a while. Sure. I mean, you know, what happened actually was that Mark Sullivan and Pepper just got jobs at Snowboarder. So in a lot of ways, I think that they did win because Neil Korn never got a job anywhere, you know? And, and so Bridges and Sullivan were able to, to translate East Infection into this like amazing career in snowboarding. I mean, but it's also like what I look at and what I appreciate and I just ignore the stuff that's boring. How many women do you think were snowboarding at a professional level back then? total i don't know i probably name them let's see tina bassich uh barrett christie jamie mcleod kyla duffy um oh morgan lafonte she used to snowboard in a bra athena who was my coach at high cascade and she was i'm sorry not very good at snowboarding um <laughs> i don't know there's probably like five more Jana mayan was sick. I remember seeing her in the garden being like, holy shit, that's a girl. Like, she was so sick. Um, but yeah, no, like Shannon Dunn, obviously. Mm -hmm. Natasha Zurich. I mean, but like, I can literally name all the female personal words of that era. Oh, and then if we go Europe, we got Nicola Toast, uh, Steamroom Caldas. You know, there, I mean, there's, okay, maybe there was 20. So it it was small. <laughs> You know what's something really great about you is that you are kind of this like encyclopedic knowledge of of snowboarding. You know, the way that you can rattle off, you know, snowboarders during a certain decade is like really <laughs> similar to like comic book nerds, you know? 
Sure. I'm a, I'm a snowboard nerd. I'll admit it. And I'm not even like that. I don't know. I don't watch every video by any means, you know, but I just kind of keep my eye on it. I like to pay attention. I flip through mm -hmm. the magazines. I, you know, look at the internet. I mean, and I took, I've taken breaks in there. So there's definitely eras of snowboarding that are just black holes for me. But I think in general, like, yeah, like I have, I don't know, just a lot of, of knowledge, a lot of experiences, you know, I was part of a lot of it. And that's, I think the difference between me and a comic book nerd, <laughs> not to say I'm not a nerd because I fully <laughs> own that, but I was there. You know, it's like Slumdog Millionaire. Like, how did you know? Well, I was there. Like, I was there when Trevor Andrew won a pack of cigarettes for doing the first McTwist in the Aaron style at freaking whatever amphitheater in LA. Like, I don't know. Just weird events. You know, I was in Japan when Sean White trashed the whole his hotel room because Kevin Pierce beat him. Like I was there. So, you know, and I think you would see my, my male counterpart, we'll call him Pat Bridges, uh, is similar. Like he was at a lot of those events and in 10, 15 years, it's going to be Stan because Stan was there at all those events and Mary Walsh and T-Bird. I mean, there's a lot of people like me who are also just like there the whole time and we all grew up together and, you know, you just run into each other. It's just kind of like a cyclical scene which is fun and also terrible, but mostly fun. Do you have any stories? You kind of mentioned two situations, but like a full story of something that you feel was emblematic of those days when you were kind of coming up. Um, I don't know. You know, what's crazy is that the stories that stick out the most in my mind are the ones where actually I wish I was there, like um, spring loaded when the whole GNU team showed up and like Jamie Lynn was there and oh my God, it was like so cool. And I was young, you know, I was like 15. Like I didn't really understand what was going on. I just knew it was like the sickest thing. And then there was like a crazy party at um, a Kicks Tavern, which it just so recently sold for, I don't know how much, but uh, had become like three things since then. But, you know, it was like people still talk about it to this day. And I'm like, man, I wish I was at that party, but I was just too young. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that was kind of like my impression of snowboarding. And then when I did start going to the parties, what would happen is I would drink a lot. And so I don't have a ton of memories. Um, but I would say just U.S. Open in general, the early days of the U.S. Open was probably the most representative of that snowboard scene um i remember we went to uh the uvm house which you know a bunch of kids from uvm had rented this condo and they were having a party and everybody was there like ross powers was there luke lyon was there like all the all the dudes and oh man people were like trashing the hot hot tub but you know it all kind of blends together too there was like another party at Okimo with a potato gun and Mike Arts had a potato gun. Uh, you know, so so to answer your question now, I don't have any good stories. Every story that I've heard or I've been a part of 
from when I was younger and I was involved in snowboarding, there was always so much alcohol involved. Oh, for sure. I'm not sure if the snowboard industry has gotten away from that. Do you think it has? Mm, I think people still party, but I think there's a lot more jocks for lack of like a better term. And there's a lot more adults in the room now, Mm -hmm. you know, it used to be, and I don't know, like I'm not hanging out with the 20 year old kids anymore. So I don't know what they're doing. Like there's probably a bunch of people who are drunk right now. (laughs) Right. This moment. (laughs) Right. I mean, I hope so. I hope so. Because I think that when you're in your 20s, that's a great thing to do. But now I'm like 40 years old and I obviously still drink. And I will write many stories about how wonderful beer is in combination with snowboarding in the near future. But I don't get wasted. Mm -hmm. I don't party and rage. I have no interest in staying out after 10. But that's me. I'm a grown up, you know, so it's almost hard for me to say. Um, But I do think like marketing wise, you don't see kind of the party lifestyle marketing campaigns you used to. Movies like Happy Hour. Right. And and it's also shifted a lot to weed um, as weed has become legal, you know, and I think weed is probably a more snowboard friendly substance. So, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever. But I've also seen that party scene destroy a lot of people Mm -hmm. and, you know, and it sucks. Like you should be able to get into snowboarding and be a personal snowboarder without running the risk of your alcoholism acting up because everyone just keeps putting beer in your hand. So I don't know, but I don't have like a solution for that. (laughs) In the course of, writing articles for snowboard publications, I've had to either reach out to or contact um, snowboarders that I grew up like really looking up to and having gotten them on the phone or maybe I haven't got them on the phone because they're, I don't know, in jail or they've, they have just turned into these people that are it's a good word for it degenerates degenerates homeless people you know it, it and it's it's really disheartening and sad to see them having fallen from such heights right yeah it definitely affects people differently and it's hard to go backwards it's hard to go from winning the X games to waiting tables, you know, it's hard to have a million dollars in the bank and then lose it all and get arrested for weed, you know, like Mm -hmm. it, it sucks. And I, I don't know if it's snowboarding's fault, the snowboard industry or the snowboard scene or the culture or whatever, or if it's that those people were destined to be degenerates anyway and maybe snowboarding prop them up for a few years you know yeah that i think that's a great way to look at it actually people cook their own goose in life Mm -hmm. and so it's i think snowboarding is 99 percent positive for people yes there are bad things that can happen you can die snowboarding you can 
break your neck snowboarding. You can get paralyzed. You can get addicted to alcohol. You know, like you can blame snowboarding for that. But at the end of the day, everybody makes their own choices in life. Mm -hmm. So if you want to sit there and say, oh, well, if I hadn't been a pro snowboarder and everyone hadn't given me alcohol, I never would have ended up in jail. Like you can say that, but it's not true. It's not reality. So I don't know. That's just my take on it. I just went deep. No, I think that's great. I think that that is, um, I think it's a thoughtful answer that considers all of these people, I mean, as people rather than a kind of these level, action right? figures. Yeah, human level, exactly. And like, yeah, absolutely. Like child stars, you know, poor Britney Spears. Like bad things happen to people, but you can't like make some overreaching generalization that, oh, the snowboard industry like encouraged partying too much and therefore that person went down the wrong path. Like, but it also got them outside and gave, got them to travel around the world. And, you know, like if Nate Bozung had never started snowboarding, who knows what would have happened? But would he be better or worse off? Like, you can't say that. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no way to tell. Yeah, I feel like he was absolutely ahead of his time. Even with like the face tattoos, I think he was ahead of its time, ahead of his time. But I think somewhere along the line, something may have gone wrong. Yeah. I mean, he he had a substance abuse problem. Okay. I think the underlying issue with Nate, but Nate's a great guy. And honestly, I wish, you know, I, every time you hear about him in trouble again, it's just heartbreaking because you just want him to be okay. Like, well, you know me, I just want everyone to be okay. Everyone to be happy. So I want to go back to talking about women in snowboarding because I had a few other questions about it. Do you think the scene now is more equitable than it used to be? Yes, in a lot of ways. Um, no, in some other ways. I mean, it's always going to be, well, I shouldn't say it's always going to be. I shouldn't say that. You know, my whole feminism approach is new to me. I was always a tomboy. I was always one of the boys. I always just was like, oh, shut up, girls. Like, don't use your vagina as an excuse, whatever. And I still feel that way, that, like, women need to step up and, like, you know, play along, play the same game. But I now appreciate how much harder, how much, I don't know, struggle and other extra bullshit that we deal with as women that I've dealt with, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I started this interview with that, like a man dragged me down, you know, and if I had been a guy, I don't know, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Right. But, um, so I guess what I'm getting at is that part of me feels like it's a little patronizing, like, oh, it's women's appreciation month. La -di -da. But the other part of me looks at, you know, the natural selection coming event coming up. There's five men and five women. And I'm just as excited to see both of them. You know, um, I just watched the world championships from Aspen and like the girl who won, whose name I now forget. Uh, it, it was, you know, a trick that would have won a men's big air contest like two years ago before they started doing 1800s. Mm hmm. You know, like, it's sick. Like, girls have stepped up. And 
the ability level is now there. And so now we're seeing kind of the media catch up. It's also hard to say because there was such a void in the snowboard media for the past few years. And, you know, part of it could be that I wasn't paying attention. But with snowboarder going under, well, not under, but, you know, basically like losing its entire staff of merit uh, and Transworld's gone and Yobeat was gone. I mean, there just wasn't anything really. Mm-hmm. So it's just like, okay, our brands paying attention to the women. I guess that's what we're going to look at. And like, you solve a lot of companies that have one girl on their team, like a lot of companies. So we're getting there. We're getting there. I just had a conversation with Steve Clausen and Julie Zell about yep. King of the Hill. And Julie was saying that she would make a fraction of what her male counterpart would make. And that was back in the early to mid nineties as a professional snowboarder riding those same exact gnarly lines in Thompson pass or in Verbier. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, it's the wage gap and um, Charlotte actually wrote a story about it for Yobi that I reposted on blower. Um, in 2017 and I've asked her to, you know, follow up and check. Obviously this year with COVID, everything is different. Mm-hmm. Um, but so far it seems like all the contests are paying equal. X Games pays equal, natural selection play- pays equal. Actually, I'm not even really clear if there's a women's and men's division in natural selection this next one cuz it's like a video contest, but I guess we'll see. You know, so so it is I don't know seeming to kind of even out. But it's not, I don't know. I was, you know, I just wrote the story about Bank Solomon and how competitive the old person division was. And by old person, I mean 40 plus um, or 35 plus, I should say. Not 40 yet, but I turned 40 the day before I can get vaccinated in Vermont. What up? Uh, <laughs> sorry. Another tangent. Really excited about it, though. Uh, <laughs> but it turned out I was the only girl in my division. Like I was like, there's so many people here, but it was all guys, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I was the only woman in that contest between the ages of 35 and 40, which is crazy to me because there were so many people in that age group. And, you know, so, it, and then and I saw another thing on Instagram where the girl who got, uh, or I don't know, I don't even know what contest I'm talking about. My, my, my modern uh, recognition is harder or my recollection is harder than my old timey recollection, apparently. Uh, but she said, like, I'm the only girl in my division, you know? And I was like, yo, like, let's get more girls snowboarding because, I don't know, there's 50% of the population is female. Like, snowboarding's not hard. It doesn't, because you're a girl doesn't mean you can't do it. Like, why don't women snowboard? And that in my old age is something that I like care about and want to see change. And I think it is changing and it will change and it comes through representation and coverage and brands stepping up and having like a legit women's team and also paying women equally. Mm -hmm. I know it's a lot to ask, but you know, we'll get there someday. I'm remembering an article that I actually wrote for Yobeat. I think it was the last article that I wrote about the snowboard industry. And I spoke to a guy, I forget his name, but he works in data. Nate Fristo. 
I only know because I literally just reposted that story. So I read it. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, if it's that guy, that guy said that over the last few decades, the um, participation in snowboarding has gone down significantly. So I wonder if a symptom of that is less women, less girls getting into snowboarding. Yeah. I mean, I've seen statistics that say basically that, you know, an equal number of women and men start snowboarding, but the percentage of men who continue to snowboard versus the percentage of women who continue to snowboard is like, it's night and day, right? Like most men keep going and most women don't. And I can tell you why it's because women's snowboard gear sucks. And I'm not talking about the boots and bindings and boards. They're fine. They're fine. Although actually I think Charlotte would argue with me about the boots, but I find my boots to be totally fine. I'm talking about the fact that pants don't fit over hips and asses. And I'm talking about the fact that jackets are either huge in the top and tight in the bottom or tight on the top and huge on the bottom and are uncomfortable and you don't stay warm. And it's like, how can you have fun snowboarding if your gear isn't at least capable of keeping you warm Mm -hmm. and comfortable? You know, like I need mobility. I need to be able to lift my arms up without like my jacket coming up to my boobs. Like it's not that hard. I mean, I'm literally still wearing a pair of 2012 Nike snowboarding pants because they're the only pants that fit me. I wonder why that is. Do you think that maybe men are designing these? Um, Partially that. I also think that it has a lot to to do with um, the fact that most snowboard outerwear is made in Asia and the Asian sizing is not American sizing. Okay. Um, And so they're using, you know, Asian fit models. So... I don't know. It's frustrating. It's really frustrating that I can't find pants that fit me. Why do you think magazines like Trans World and Snowboarder went out of business? Because they were bought by giant corporations that didn't care. Also because they didn't adapt quickly enough to the changing market, you know? And I think the media is a tough business. You and I both know that. Mm-hmm. But it's also a business that's infinitely adaptable. And you just have to be always thinking on your feet. And when you're part of like this giant conglomerate that sets the trends and the standards and whatever and tells you what you have to do, it's hard to do that. So that's part of the problem. And they just weren't, they're just, nobody cared. Nobody was reading them. Mm. You know, like, yeah, sure. Like, snowboarder and trans world maybe i don't know but snowboarder definitely like did a great job and had some great articles but it was irrelevant to 99 percent of the people who snowboard because 99 percent of the people who snowboard don't know there are pro snowboarders they don't care that there's a scene and so you know you can try and cover that and the other thing is that they were always targeted at 17 year olds which was fine when that was the only option, but like 17 year olds like are not picking up magazines anymore. Mm-hmm. But even after that, like iPhones came out and the internet came out and just print in general just kind of fell off, they continued to try and talk to that same age range and 
same audience and it's like well they're not listening like they're not trying you know and so when it comes down to the bottom line if there's no audience there's no need for it but as far as the snowboard industry went it's a huge loss Mm -hmm. you know like media is what's going to keep the scene and the connection alive in a lot of ways so i don't know tough world out there you know other than watching snowboard clips i don't really keep up on the snowboard industry so i don't know if this question has been answered before but within the snowboarding industry you have these people who have been kind of these purveyors and curators of the sport people like pat bridges who was the editor of snowboarder magazine for such a long time what do you think happens to these people after traditional snowboard publications aren't around anymore all right well so let me correct you first Pepperidge's was the editor of Snowboarder Magazine long, long ago, but in more recent history, he was the creative director. Okay. Um, he had a much more like over the top job, uh, kind of pulling the strings, holding the marionette handles, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, Stan was actually the editor of Snowboarder at the end. Um, and Bridges and Stan and a bunch of other people. I think there's a lot of people involved. I honestly don't know. Um, are doing <clears throat> slush mag, which is, you know, they basically uh, had an Instagram account underneath the snowboarder brand that the parent company didn't really know about. And so they were able to rebrand that and kick off slush mag with that. So they have like 100K followers and they're just doing their thing, man. It's like another media outlet. And which actually I'm, I'm psyched that they're doing it i told stan like i'm very psyched to like launch a media brand alongside him and help each other out because there's room for three publications in snowboarding three major publications in snowboarding you know historically that's what brands have accepted and whatever and yes the internet changed everything but i think from a culture and industry perspective that there can be three outlets and that will create enough room for all the brands to be represented, all the riders to be represented and for enough stories to be told for snowboarding to have that kind of like, I don't know, robust excitement again. So to answer your question, like that's what Bridges is gonna do. You know, Bridges isn't gonna lay down and die. Like Bridges will always be a part of snowboarding and he is super creative and super funny and has as much knowledge and way more connections than i do so if he wants to start a snowboard media site like it's gonna happen so you know i don't think you have to worry about smart creative people they're always gonna find a way brooke you're so positive (laughs) i know right who who am i (laughs) who am i One thing that you said earlier that I thought was really great was that as far as, you know, Pat Bridges was concerned, you were, you were kind of his counterpart Sure. in many ways. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard that from other people, so I didn't just make that up. Like, it's not something I probably would have said if no, no one had ever said it to me first, because, you know, Bridges has this kind of like godlike status and I, I don't feel like that um i mean i definitely have 
respect from people and just like the response to me coming back has been I don't know it's amazing like people are just excited they're like oh we missed you we missed your perspective like snowboarding's been boring without you um and I don't know it it's really cool to hear that and I think people feel that way about Bridges but I guess because he was older than me because I was like a little kid kind of looking up to him I'll never be able to truly put myself on the same plane as him but yeah there's definitely like parallel lives parallel lives Okay, so let's move on to Yobi. Okay. That uh that was a thing. Did it for a really long time. It was my heart and soul. And like I said when we started, I had a very negative partner who made me feel like I couldn't do it alone, who helped a lot, brought a lot of skills and a very cool office and a lot of things to the table. And I was so convinced that I couldn't do it without him that I let him destroy it. And it sucks. It sucks a lot. And it's like took me three years to get over it. But, you know, I, I think in a lot of ways, Yobi needed to die for me to be able to do what I really wanted to do. Because there was always going to be that underlying, like, this is the blog that I started when I was 15 mm-hmm. kind of vibe to it. It was always going to be snowboarding from 15-year-old Brooks' perspective. And now that it's gone and it's been gone long enough that I kind of can move on and be like, okay, I can be myself. I can create the media I want to create. I don't have to answer to shitty commenters or my shitty ex or whatever, it's almost liberating to, I don't know, I can take the good stuff from Yobeat and I can apply it to Blower, but I can also just forget about anything I didn't like about Yobeat. Mm-hmm. So You don't have to hold on to any of that baggage. Exactly. There's no expectations. You know, and I always said, like, when I write the book about Yobi, it's going to be called Unrealistic Expectations, the Yobi story, because every single person involved had unrealistic expectations, myself included. You know, the advertisers had unrealistic expectations. My partner had unrealistic expectations. My employees had unrealistic expectations. It was just not reality. And it worked for years somehow, but it just never had that solid footing that you needed to be like a bigger success than just like kind of a novelty brand. Mm -hmm. What were these unrealistic expectations? Oh, just what was going to be possible, you know, what we were going to be able to uh, accomplish or achieve, how much traffic we get, how much money we'd make, how much money people should get paid. Uh, I mean, there's just endless like, and, and, and myself, you know, I definitely am overly ambitious sometimes. And also, uh, I've already told my new developer that I often move so quickly that it just slows things down because I just make terrible decisions or, you know, buy things I don't need or whatever. Um, but I think it was just, you know, kind of like young, dumb and just trying to figure it out. So, I don't know. Was there a situation that gave you that name? Unrealistic Expectations? No, it was just kind of like a joke that Jim O'Leary, who's helping me now with Blower, 
and I would make like any time someone would ask for something just outlandish. I mean, for five hundred dollars, people want us to like give them the world. We're like, dude, it's five hundred dollars. Like, it's <laughs> honestly not even worth going to the bank for. Like, come on. But you know that that's just that's uh, that's life, I guess, <laughs> and learning how to run a business and. You know, like I like to think that I can learn from my mistakes. So going through the whole process and making the mistakes I did, I learned a lot. And I think this time around, uh, it'll be a more productive experience for me and for everyone involved. And I think if you talk to any of the people who are working with me already and yourself included, like I'm a different person. I'm happy and a positive and i'm thinking how can we make this better not like why is everyone trying to screw us you know mm -hmm. and i just the attitude is will make the difference um and then you add on to that all the experiences i already have and all the like failures of the past i'm excited i'm excited to see what happens yeah i i think that maybe this next era is realistic expectations. I remember being in this conversation with T-Bird and Pat Bridges, and I was writing articles for them right near the end mm -hmm. of Snowboarder. And I remember telling myself, okay, I need to ask this question. I need to ask, like, can I basically be a more permanent writer, maybe be on retainer or something like that. And they both were stoked on it. They're like, yeah, let's do this. And uh, they told me that they had a meeting coming up and this was like maybe a week or two. And I was like, sweet. Okay. Yeah. Like, that's awesome. Like, you know, you guys are talking to corporate as far as I understand. I'm just trying to remember. Yeah. Um, And they came back to me and they were like, basically, um, they're taking the money away. We have less money now, so there's not going to be any retainer. We're not going to be able to, basically they were telling me like, I'm not going to be able to write for them anymore. I'm like, well, shit, like this has been, you know, pretty amazing so far being able to write in this magazine that I've, I've, uh, kept copies of my entire life. You know, my dad owned a snowboard shop. So like, yeah. I've just been around, you know, that culture my entire life. And it was like kind of this dream come true that even in that moment, I was able to be appreciative for what was, you right. know, and what I was able to do. And I think that that, that was maybe, maybe one of the beginnings or one of the points where I started having like these realistic expectations. Right. I mean, people think, oh, I'm going to get into the snowboard industry and we get this dream job and I'm going to travel around the world for free and I'm going to have plenty of money and going to be so great and like no it's not like that i mean with blower i have divided the labor up i have a business manager i have a developer i have a designer i have contributors such as yourself like i know what i can do i know what my strengths are and i'm going to focus on those and let everybody else worry about everything else but i also know that i may never make a dime off blower like so far I've invested about a thousand bucks and I'm okay with that if I never see it back, you know? Mm -hmm. And instead of, I don't know, fixating on like this goal, I'm just going to have fun with it. And if that kind of wild goal of, oh my God, somebody wants to buy it or people like are still coming and they want to advertise happens, like, yay, that's just a bonus. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. 
but I also know that like after a while you do need incentive to continue to make media, you know, like you, I don't know. I'm only human and I also have bills to pay, but I have a job, so it's cool. Yeah. That I think was the motivation for me in that conversation, you know, asking, can this be more of a full-time or part-time thing? And I remember Pat saying something along the lines of, you know, before I had this job, I was living in a van. Right. Like basically telling me kind of in a, in a nice way, because we don't know each other super well at all. Yeah. So he was, I think being kind of, being kind of polite in saying like, you need to have more realistic expectations, dude. Right. Yeah. If you think you're going to get into snowboard media and make a ton of money, like, yeah, ain't. Yeah, not. <laughs> the only time I ever made a lot of money in snowboarding is when I worked for Nike. Mm. And other than that, it's just been enough to get by. You know, with Yobi, I didn't even really pay myself because I always had another job. Um, I And when I, when I did have to pay myself, when it was my only job, I was miserable, like beyond miserable. It was so stressful for me. Um, so, you know, and I know that about myself and for that reason, like I'm very, very psyched to work for a local newspaper in Killington and have that outlet and income so that I can just do blower on the side for fun Mm -hmm. and not have to worry about it. And like, yeah, if it makes money, awesome. Like, great. That would be so cool. I'll go on a trip to bald face, you know, like, yeah, yeah. But if it doesn't, like, I'm not going to starve. And I think that that makes the content better. You know, I, I recently went back and and I read a few of my earlier articles, um, a few in Crude, and then I think one on Yobeat, and then maybe, I don't know, something else. And looking at it now, I, or thinking about it now, I'm excited to start writing again, because although I've been writing a lot, I write every single week for the podcast, you know, with the intro and questions and, you know, so my mind is still there and it's still sharp, but I'm like excited to see what type of writer I am now, you know, having not written specifically for articles in so long. Mm -hmm. I feel like my writing has improved that it's gotten easier for me working for a newspaper, you think about things differently, you form quotes differently. It just, it's just a different, I don't know, using AP style again. Like I feel like I'm back in journalism school Yeah. and that kind of, I don't know, writing style. Mm-hmm. Were there ever any articles that you regret writing or publishing on Yobi? Sure. I shouldn't have published that Burton letter. That was shitty. I mean, it got a ton of traffic and it got a lot of people calling me, but the timing was horrible. It was just inappropriate to put it up because it made life harder for a lot of people. Um, I I don't know. Other than that, no. Everything was fine. People get bent out of shape over nothing a lot of times. And that Burton letter kind of detailed some of the toxicity in their workplace if i remember correctly right yeah and i mean from that perspective i thought it was a positive thing you know because that was the situation that i was hearing about from a lot of people and for a lot of people that worked there and dealt with that they were like oh thank god like maybe something will change 
But what I didn't know was that, you know, Jake was in the hospital paralyzed. Like, I didn't know any of that. And and so it was just too much. And and that goes back to the kind of like looking at people on a human level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can look at Jake and Donna and say, oh, well, they were public figures and they're kind of like bigger, larger than life. And they should just know that this is just the price you pay for being successful. But as like an adult now, I don't want to be that person anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. I still want to deliver the news. I still want to be realistic. I still want truth, but I don't need to take people down to do it anymore. And so that's going to be, I think the biggest change that people notice going forward in me is just that I'm just here to like make people like snowboarding and like share what I, what I love and, you know, hopefully people like it. Yeah. Which gets back to what you were saying about laying Yobi to rest and how you feel like it's this natural progression where you don't have to be that 16 year old Brooke anymore. You can move on to being almost 40 year old Brooke with blower. (laughs) Totally. Exactly. That's, that's the plan, you know, we'll see what happens. (laughs) So what ultimately happened to Yobi? Um, well, basically there was a lawsuit. Um, I paid 50 grand to lawyers to fight over nothing. Uh, I finally, basically the legal battle lasted as long as it did because I had already gone in and sold ad contracts before I got sued. And so I had like five contracts that ran through March that I said, I have to fulfill these. I have to, because I made this commitment to like these five, it was like Bear Mountain, Darkside, Killington. I don't even remember. I don't even remember. But like I, I had signed a piece of paper that said, I'm going to do all this stuff for your brand through March. Mm-hmm. And I got sued in probably December or January. I think it was January that he filed like a $600,000 lawsuit against me, alleging me of like conversion and like actual financial crimes that I couldn't just ignore because I said to my lawyer, can we just ignore this? Like, this is bullshit. And he was like, no, because if we ignore it, then you'll basically be found guilty and then you'll have financial crimes on your record forever. So, uh, that sucked (laughs) and i did the best i could to stick with it and by the end of it i just said you know what you can have it you can have every single thing you can have facebook you have the website you can have the url you can have the name you have the apparel brand you have the instagram you can have it all i don't want it take it and he said to me well i don't want the website i wouldn't do that to you i just want the instagram and the name and i was like fine like whatever, take the stupid Instagram and Yobeat is yours and I'll change it to Yobeat.com. And I tried, I tried and I just said, you know what? Like, I don't even care. And I just let it, you know, that's why I put up the Yobeat is dead. And eventually I got sick of paying for it and I deleted it and I did it in haste as I often do. Um, So a lot of, it got completely deleted forever. I don't have a backup. It doesn't exist. Um, but I do have a lot of stuff, especially from the later days of Yobi, um, thanks to hard drives and 
Gmail and everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to bring back the stuff uh, that I liked and I thought was cool. Um, they still have, but yeah, I just let it rest, let it live there forever. And uh, and the Instagram and the name got sold to Korea, and that is why there is now a Korean outerwear brand called Yobeat. So, but I did not get any of the money for that. Uh, I was not involved. I don't know anything about it. Really, my only contact with them has been to send a Facebook message saying, take the thing I wrote off your website. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, as long as my ex isn't involved, I have no ill will towards them. Like, they're just trying to do their thing. And it's in some ways kind of cool to see Yobi written on uh, out of our line in Korea, I guess. Which is kind of funny to think about because you came up with Yobeat in an AOL chat room. Was that it? Yeah. And what is the the history behind the name? Uh, well, so you remember like Teen Beat and Tiger Beat? I don't think so, but I'll trust you. <laughs> okay. All right. You're younger than me. I forget this. So back in my day... Uh, <laughs> There were these magazines called Teen Beat and Tiger Beat, and they were just like pictures of cute boys and whatever. And at that point in time, like yo culture was very big in snowboarding. And everybody was really like into hip hop and baggy pants. And so we became Yo Beat because that's what the snowboarders read. And that's where the name came from. It's so stupid. But I kind of loved it after the fact, like 10 years later. So now with, with blower, where do you see blower fitting in that list of relevant top three snowboard publications? Sure. I've got, I've got the team assembled that can be there. And, you know, I look at what else is out there. And to me, snowboarder is like irrelevant at this point. And uh, I mean, maybe that's ignorant, you know, I think, they have that legacy title and whatever, but from an industry perspective, from the people who are involved and have been involved for a long time, like snowboarder doesn't exist without top bridges. And so, you know, I look at the landscape and what do we have? And I see blower slush and torment. And the way I figure is that slush can be the new snowboarder. Torment can be the new Yobeat and we'll be Transworld Number one, baby. But, you know, we'll see what happens. You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.